0: Welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology, a 12-episode podcast series hosted by Emma Marti, a senior at Piedmont University. Emma and a guest will be discussing and dissecting a theory, all while questioning the origin of the claims. Host Emma Marti and all guests are not supporting any theories, but simply looking at information to dive into the belief of the theory. Joining me today on Conspiracy Theoryology is Professor Laura Hudgens. She is the newest addition to the Piedmont University Mass Communications Department. She's an instructor of mass communications and teaches courses in media writing, web design, and public speaking. For this episode, we are talking about the conspiracy theories behind water fluoridation. Different to other conspiracy theories mentioned on this podcast, the water fluoridation theory doesn't necessarily question whether or not it's occurring, rather why it's occurring. Um, So water fluoridation is the process of adding fluoride to drinking water, for those unaware. There's so many theories behind this idea because of the health risks behind the action, which is why it is so controversial. And while obviously there are health benefits, some question whether or not the harm outweighs the good that it does, essentially. Do you think water fluoridation is an infringement of individual rights?
1: I, okay, I struggle with this a little bit because I can fully see the argument of where it's not like mm-hmm. we don't we don't have a huge choice in where we get our water. yeah I mean you can obviously buy bottled water, but that's super expensive mm-hmm. and just out of reach for a lot of people and you know some people have well water that doesn't have fluoride in it, but for the most part, you are stuck with the water that you get yeah from your tap and in that sense, I mean I we do definitely take away. An individual choice by you know making sure there's fluoride in all the water but there are other public health measures that we take and some would accept that i i think could be seen the same way like, yeah. like vaccines like yeah you cannot get back you know vaccinated as you go into first grade for example but then you can't go to your public school right you have yeah. to make that choice of going somewhere else same thing with seatbelts. You have to wear a seatbelt. If mm-hmm. you don't, if you choose not to, you're going to get a ticket. Yeah. Um, we don't allow people to drive after they've had seizures because it's dangerous. And so like we take these public health measures that do, yeah, technically infringe on people's rights if you look at the definition of that. But we accept them because it's for individual benefit, it's for the greater good. Mm-hmm. It, it makes enough of, it makes enough I guess, sense um, from like financial standpoints, public health standpoints that we accept it. And I think that fluoridation of water falls in that same category.
0: I would agree with that. Um, We were talking before I started recording and everything and I told you that this is something that I wasn't 100% familiar with. And I wasn't like, yeah, I just really wasn't familiar with this conspiracy theory and everything. So um, first of all, I'm excited to learn more about it and stuff like that. Um, but I definitely agree because when I was doing my research, I was reading because, like you said, there is benefits for the greater good, but it does take away some of that individual choice mm-hmm. of whether or not.
1: <laughs> yeah, the benefits, I mean, the benefits are pretty great, though. Yeah. they It saves So I mean, in the U.S., we're all about finances, saving money, mm-hmm. economic benefit, and there's huge economic benefit both for individuals and families. As well as for our health system as Mm -hmm. a whole, because fluoride and water prevents tooth decay. It prevents, um, you know, it helps keep your teeth strong. And Mm -hmm. so the less people are having to deal with those issues, the better. And there's obviously that benefit too of, hey, this is actually helping to keep your mouth healthy and keep your teeth strong, especially for little kids.
0: Yeah. So do you think it's ethical to do this?
1: I I do think it's ethical. Mm -hmm. And again... I can see where people would feel like it's not. Yeah. But it's really hard for us. And this is tricky for people. And I think this is where so many conspiracy theories sort of stem from is we can't understand everything. And that can be really hard for us as people to accept. Like, I want to feel like I'm educated about everything. Mm -hmm. And I'm not. And none of us are. And so we have to rely on people to make decisions for us sometimes. And that can feel really tricky, but I'm gonna trust a public health expert to make a public health decision for me. And I'm gonna trust, you know, I I can't change my own oil. So I'm gonna trust a mechanic to do it for me. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like this sort of falls into the same thing where it is ethical because we're not just letting someone who's uninformed make the call. We're relying on experts to do it for us and I I wish that people could feel good about that, and Mm -hmm. we don't always, but, you know, these these experts, like, they have our best interests There's a
0: reason that they're experts in what they're doing.
1: 100%. And, like, I know it feels not good when we can't be super informed about every single issue, but I think it's something we kind of got to accept.
0: I agree. And I like what you said about, like, a lot of conspiracy theories you really do just it's natural for humans to just want to know everything about everything oh yeah we're
1: just looking for those answers and looking to yeah. fill those gaps mm-hmm. and sometimes the real answer is really confusing yeah or really complicated and so it's easier to find a you know more simplified answer that yeah. might not be true
0: yeah sometimes living in that like fictional fantasy world of where some things you just want something to be true so bad that mm-hmm. you make it true
1: yeah 100%
0: like sometimes that's good and sometimes that's where a lot of danger and conspiracy theories can come from Mm -hmm. because like me and dr dennis when we talked about pizzagate it was like that man was living in a world where there was a child molestation ring happening in that pizza restaurant so Mm -hmm. that's why he acted the way that he did and thankfully no lives were lost but like i don't know that's just where the danger of conspiracy theories come from because when people take them with so much face value that that's their only truth
1: Yeah, 100%. And I know you've talked on here before, like, there are some conspiracy theories that are really fun and harmless, Mm -hmm. and then there are some that aren't. And I, I think the fluoride in water kind of falls into the harmless to some extent, just because if someone thinks that the fluoride in their water is harming them, they're probably not going to, like, do something to the water supply or prevent other people from consuming it.
0: They're just going to, like, get other water elsewhere that exactly. they trust. Yeah.
1: Or or they'll just, every time they turn on their tap, be like, oh, fluoride in my water, yeah. government brain control. Like, it's, it's probably not going to extend much yeah. beyond that.
0: Yeah. When I was doing my research, I read on Wikipedia this long quote. I'm just going to read it out. So it says, quote, media reporters are often poorly equipped to explain the scientific issues and are more and are motivated to present controversy regardless of the underlying scientific merits. Websites, which are increasingly used by the public for health information, contain a wide range of material about fluoridation ranging from factual to fraudulent with a disproportionate percentage opposed to fluoridation, end quote. So when it comes to reporting on science, what role do you think journalists have since it's a field that they're not always familiar with? Because there are definitely times where like I'll be asked to write a story or something, and it's something I'm not like fully comfortable with, but I do it because it's the assignment and everything. Mm-hmm. But it's like on a larger scale. What do you, what do you think?
1: So I'm gonna start probably all my answers with, oh, this is super tricky, but, <laughs> and that's 100% this one too. Yeah. And so my dissertation for my PhD is actually looking at how scientific studies are presented in like soft news, like Good Morning America and the Today Show. And we, we see a lot of stories on there about coffee is a big one where it's like one week a study will come out that says if you drink coffee, it'll, you know, extend your lifespan. And then the next week we'll see, oh, if you drink coffee, it'll give you these various elements. Like it, we kind of go back and forth mm-hmm. with stuff. And that's, I think, where the problem lies is because journalists and reporters, as a former journalist and as someone who teaches future journalists I'm always I always want to believe that they have the public's interest at heart mm-hmm. and I do believe that but I also know that they feel a real obligation to put information out there and it even if they're doing their due diligence and doing their fact checking if they're getting information from a source and the problem is more so with the source that's that's really hard for them to figure out and there are a lot of people out there who do bad science and mm-hmm. who are just pushing out studies because it's getting funded or they're just trying to get published or trying to get famous and that can be hard for a journalist to to make sense of. And so I think the the big takeaway for me with the role of reporters and the media would always be to present things with almost a grain of salt. Yeah. If you're if you're reporting on a scientific study or if you're reporting on something like you know, fluoride and water, it, it might be really tempting to present both sides. Mm-hmm. But there could 100% be that, you know, false equivalence going on where, yeah. yeah, there are doctors and there are scientists who are against something. But that doesn't mean they're right. And it doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. Yeah. And so I think they have to, you know, we just have to present these stories as, hey, here is what one person said. Maybe they're in the minority of Mm -hmm. what they said, or maybe the study that we're reporting on was not conducted super well. Maybe it was a small study. Maybe it was just conducted on mice and not on people and can't be extrapolated. I just think it's really important to, sure, report on that story, but make sure that you're giving people context. And audiences might not know what to make of that context, but I think, at least in that case, the reporter did what they needed to do and made it really clear that here were the findings or here was this opinion of an expert. But here's some more context to understand why that might not be the opinion of the rest of the you know the medical community or, or whatever body of experts.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that because um, when you were talking, it reminded me about how like when information about like the COVID-19 vaccine started coming out and mm-hmm. everything and people would post on like specifically Instagram. I remember seeing it. They would post something on their stories and then Instagram would add the little thing on the bottom that says this post contains information relating to COVID-19 if you have questions or anything like go to the CDC website and everything so I feel like that's a really important thing that journalists when they're reporting stuff it doesn't even have to be like science related it can just be any field that they're not 100% educated on just like you said report it with a grain of salt like Mm -hmm. here's what we have to present to you you do with it what you please essentially like if you want to learn more here are some other sources that you can check out but I think it's just important that journalists shouldn't really be held accountable necessarily if some Mm -hmm. of that information is later on proven to be false or harmful because at the end of the day they're just reporting what they have and if they do their due diligence and they do fact check and everything and they I guess, come up with the same results in a sense, like maybe they can be held accountable for it and everything, but at the end of the day, they didn't come up with the study. They didn't come up with the information, so they're just right. reporting what they were told.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's also where it's really important to have a role for people who work in science communication specifically and who can kind of act as that that middleman between scientists and reporters because- mm-hmm. Scientists are not, for the most part, they're not trained in a lot of communication. They don't have that background. And so the information that they're putting out can be really hard to understand and interpret. And it's put out in a very scientific way. There's a lot of jargon. And, you know, reporters can make the best of that. They can they can dig into it to the extent that they know how. But mm-hmm. having someone there in the middle to say, okay, here's what the science says, Let's make this more accessible to other people. Yeah. And then the reporters can take that. I think that's a hugely important role and, and one that we are starting to see more of where, you know, news outlets will have like a science correspondent who maybe is a doctor or who has some background in science, but also has that background in communication. Yeah. And I think that's just an increasingly important role because it is really hard for us to understand scientific stuff. And when we get confused about it, we start to lose that
0: trust. Yeah. I, when you were talking about that, it made me think of, like, if two people are just essentially talking in different languages, Mm -hmm. which is pretty much what's happening, like, with the really high-level scientific words and everything happening. You can tell I'm not a science person. (laughs) But, like, they're talking on that level, but then the journalists are talking on, like, a communications level. There's going to be some loss in translation type stuff Mm -hmm. where it's, like, if a scientific... If a science document or something has, like, a specific word that the journalist isn't familiar with, they could look it up, they could use the wrong definition or Mm -hmm. something, and it's just lost in translation. And I feel like some conspiracy theories could stem from that because of just kind of mis—not necessarily misreporting, but, like, misunderstandings,
1: in a sense. yeah. Definitely. And I mean, you know, as a mass comm student, and I think everyone sort of saw with COVID, especially in those those early days, once information gets out there, it's really, really hard to take it back. Mm-hmm. So if we have one message about something that is seemingly from an expert, if that information changes or if the way that it's delivered changes, we tend not to believe the next thing we hear. We yeah. stick with that first one with social media. It's so easy now for Im- or for messages to get shared. Um and so it's it's just, it's hard to take it back it's hard to make those corrections and so it's really important to not only get stuff right the first time but to make sure that we present it in a way that shows audiences that that can change yeah. so with the example of wearing masks early on in the pandemic and we were hearing you know even from Dr Fauci hey save the masks for healthcare providers you know regular regular everyday people don't need masks and then when that changed that it confused a lot of people, and so it made them really resistant. Mm-hmm. And that can happen with all sorts of, of stuff. And so yeah. it's important when when scientists are putting out a message and then when reporters are reporting that message, they make it clear, like, hey, this is what we know now. This could change. Like, please be, you know, amenable to more information later on.
0: Yeah. And like you said, just, like, take everything with a grain of salt, essentially, mm-hmm. because nothing is really set in stone until it is And even then, that could be changed. Yes, for sure. So the practice of adding fluoride to water is often seen as unethical because it puts those who receive a lower income at the short end of the stick, essentially, which happens way too often anyway. Um, But people often do not have the luxury to choose what type of water they drink. Like we talked about, like, just drinking from the tap or just whatever option is available um because high quality water is often more expensive. So do you think that it's possible for there to be like some sort of ulterior motive as to why like the fluoride is being put into the water and it's affecting those lower income people essentially?
1: I I personally don't think there is an ulterior motive. I think mm-hmm. that we've been we've been putting fluoride in water for a pretty long time. Yeah. And I think once we saw the the benefit of it we just kind of never revisited it mm-hmm. and i think there is a lot of value in saying oh if we put this in the water it can really help people help people with their dental health but i do also think it's so important to acknowledge the disadvantages that it puts people out who like you said already don't are already are not like taken into consideration a lot of times mm-hmm. with these policies and sort of with the treatment by society um and just you know seeing that, hey, even people who can't afford to go buy bottled water or prepackaged water, like they probably also, you know, want the they reserve the right to, to drink water that doesn't have it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's important for any public health measure to kind of take into account, like, what does the accessibility of this mean? And what does it mean for people who can't afford other options? And in what other ways are they being neglected. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think that we put fluoride in water so that they um, have to drink it, you know, yeah. and have no other <laughs> choice. But I can fully see why it would feel that way. Yeah. Because you are saying like, hey, this whole group of people aren't gonna have any options. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't always, I think, make sense to yeah. people to think like, why, if you know people don't have options, like, why would the government do it? Mm-hmm. Why would they force this upon people? Um, And they can't always necessarily, like, see the benefits or, in their minds, the benefits don't outweigh the harm.
0: Or, yeah, they'll, like, hyperfixate on the harm and be like, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter anything good that comes from it. It's only the bad, essentially.
1: And I can understand that hyperfixating on the harm Mm -hmm. because if you are part of a socioeconomic class that is so often, like, told what to do or you have certain things forced on you or you don't have the same number of resources, this would just feel like one more thing. Yeah. Where you're like, I don't even get a choice in my drinking water.
0: Because that that's at the, one of the most basic things that humans need. Like, they can survive however long without food, but they can't survive however long without water. So, yeah. I have all of the things for someone to be kind of at a disadvantage of, mm-hmm. that just shouldn't be one of them. <laughs> Definitely.
1: Yeah, yeah, water is it is an absolute life source. It's a necessity. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have other options, you are yeah. going to feel really pigeonholed by a decision that your government is making for you.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's why you should go vote. <laughs>
1: 100%. Go Lots vote. of political implications with fluoride and water. And I think it's just, it just shows like a bigger issue when it comes mm-hmm. to trust in the government and trust in experts, and also this feeling of, of losing that individualism and yeah. those rights to make your own choices mm-hmm. I do think it's just sort of like a representation of that bigger issue
0: yeah I agree
1: um I do have one okay, sort of fun fact well okay maybe not a fun fact <laughs> but a little anecdote about fluoride in water which is that the first city in the U.S. to fluoridate their water was Grand Rapids Michigan mm-hmm. and they did it in 1945 and it was announced that they were going to do this and weeks before it actually went into place Citizens of the city started complaining of, like, oh, I have these sores on my gums. I have weakened enamel. My teeth are chipping all because of the fluoride in the water. Mm-hmm. And their government had to be, like, well, you don't have it yet, so just yeah, hang like on. It's, and
0: It's not even out yet.
1: Right. Definitely a sort of a placebo effect where they were expecting yeah. it, and they, they'd already told themselves, like, it was, it was going to be bad. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was an interesting little yeah. thing about fluoride in water. Yeah.
0: That is interesting. I love the little placebo effects. They're so...
1: So fascinating. Like, yeah. The human brain is so complex, and
0: I love it. Yeah, me too. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. It was very fun.
1: Thank you. Always happy yeah. to talk about fluoride and water.
0: <laughs> Your are one passion in life, <laughs> fluoride. <laughs> thank you for listening to Conspiracy Theoryology. Be sure to tune in every Friday for a new episode with host MMRT. Keep an eye open. Someone's always watching.